Warning, the following contains spoilers pertaining to the show and subject matter discussed. Also, strong language and adult content may be included. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you. I'm glad we made it out of there. There were way too many things in there we could have bought. On the one hand, I'm really glad we're having a Harry Potter-themed wedding. But on the other hand, it's been incredibly dangerous that they've opened up this Harry Potter store here in the Flatiron District. I almost feel like we keep coming back and making our wedding even bigger and bigger than we initially (laughs) planned. That's kind of funny. What? It's literally art imitating life. What are you talking about? Think about the show we saw last night. Oh my gosh, you're right. Well, maybe we could take a tip from it. I wouldn't mind it. No, no, I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Whatever makes you happy. Come on, let's head home. We can put on the movie version of the show and work on some stuff. Sounds good. everyone, and welcome to Stage Whisper. I'm your host, Hope Bird, and with me is my co-host, Andrew Cortez. Today, we are going to be discussing the show, A Catered Affair. So hurry and take your seats. It looks like the show is starting. Hello everyone, and welcome into today's performance of Stage Whisper. Today we are going to pay a passing visit to a short-lived but wonderful show, A Catered Affair. This show had several familiar faces and a wonderful story to boot. But before we get into that, we should probably set the scene first. The musical is based on the 1956 film by Gore Vidal, which starred Betty Davis and Debbie Reynolds, and the 1955 teleplay by Pat Shevesky. For the musical, the team that would be assembled to bring together this show would be as followed. Sets by David Gallo, costumes by Anne Howell Ward, hair by David Lawrence, makeup by Angelina Avalone, lights by Brian McDervitt, sound by Dan Moses Schreier. The music and lyrics were by John Buccino. The book was by Harvey Firestein, and the direction was by John Doyle. The musical was only 90 minutes and had no intermission. The overarching theme of the show comes from a line presented by Uncle Winston. You, pay, you paid your money, took the ride, but missed the view. This really goes to show how in life we get so caught up on what we're supposed to do and how hard we need to achieve these unwritten rules and checkpoints that we forget to enjoy the time that we had doing these things. In the original source material, Uncle Winston was a twinkling Irishman. In the musical, he had been rewritten to be a twinkling homosexual. The musical arrived on Broadway at the Walter Kerr Theater, where it opened on April 17, 2008. 
It would play 116 performances until its close on July 27, 2008. In a New York Times review by Ben Bratley, he claims that the whole point of the show is that these people don't know how to have fun. Their lives have been so thwarted by sacrifice, compromise, and hard times that joy, excitement, and even mild contentment are beyond their grasp. The show was nominated for three Tony Awards that year. It would receive two Drama League Awards for Outstanding New Broadway Musical and Distinguished Production of a Musical. So, now that you're caught up, let's hop in and take a spin. Young lovers in the Bronx of 1953, Jane Hurley and Ralph Holleran, decided to get married. At the same time, we see a business arrangement being made by Jane's father, Tom. Tom owns a third share in a taxi and agrees with one of his partners, Sam, that they would buy out the third taxi driver, uh, Pasternak. Jane and Ralph, along with Tom and Sam, excitedly and happily exclaim the virtues of partnership. Timing is inauspicious, since the bride's brother has just been killed in the Korean War. The couple does not want a large, expensive wedding, and Tom needs the money to buy out Pasternak. When Jane tells her family about the upcoming marriage, there is little excitement paid. After the plan has been gone over, Aggie, Jane's mother, asks her daughter if she's sure that that's what she wants is a simple wedding. This then brings the conversation between the two about what happy, what happens to people after they're married and that remembering the day that they were married can help in the later stages of marriage. As Aggie announces the upcoming wedding will be held quickly and quietly in City Hall, the neighborhood women react. They insinuate that the rush of the wedding is because of the pitter-patter of little feet for Jane and Ralph. Aggie tells Winston, her brother who lives with them, that because of how quickly the wedding is happening, only immediate family will be there, which doesn't include him. At the engagement dinner with Ralph's wealthier family, Aggie starts to feel inadequate for the way she has prepped her daughter for marriage. Ralph's parents have offered to pay rent and utilities for their first home, a two-bedroom apartment for their first year of marriage. Mr. and Mrs. Holleran talk about how they spared no expense for their daughter's weddings because you can't put a price on your children's happiness. To compete, Aggie tells them how her and Tom are going to give the children a check so they can do whatever they want with the gift. The check in question just happens to be her and Tom's entire life savings. Mr. and Mrs. Holleran throw out the idea of surprising the children with a big affair. Just then... Winston arrives at dinner drunk. He comments about how only immediate family is invited and talks about how hurt he is and how even though they may not want him there, the couple are stuck with him. Aggie and Winston get into a little argument in front of Ralph's parents where it is alluded that Winston is gay. Winston drags Mrs. Holleran into the conversation saying that she has lived a different life and has never had to worry about confirmed bachelors, uh, or sorry, confirmed bachelor uncles uh, 
because apparently they are like dogs that belong outside. This leads to Jane stating that no one is invited except parents, which upsets Ralph's parents because what is a wedding without relatives? Ralph comes to Jane's defense, and Mr. Halloran says that everyone already feels left out. Why don't the two just elope? Things blow up, and Ralph and his family leave. Aggie tells Tom that it's their fault that Jane doesn't want a large reception because they treated their son with, with such favoritism that their daughter was inadvertently taught to not expect too much. This leads to Aggie feeling the heartbreak of losing her son, who is now just a pile of medals and a flag in a drawer. She resolves to throw her daughter a big, elaborate wedding with an extensive guest list and lavish catered reception because when Jane is older, she can look back in a big satin book and see how her parents love their only remaining child. While planning for Jane, the white wedding she never had, she takes Jane to a bridal shop. Aggie thanks Jane for putting up with this for her, and Jane says, it's nothing. She begins to enjoy the attention she, pre she was previously denied. Everyone starts to fall into their roles in the wedding. Winston becomes a support for her, his sister, Aggie, and helps her envision the wedding. He is helping put together flower arrangements. Upstage, we see the affair starting to take shape, with Tom having to cover the extra costs. Soon, relationships are strained to the breaking point under the pressure of, high cost, of the high cost of everything. Aggie confesses to Jane that she and Tom were married because she was pregnant, and it was because of this that her father bought Tom his share in the taxi. Finally... Jane and Ralph decide that their love is enough and call off the elaborate wedding and marry quietly as they had planned. The quiet and unemotional Tom finally expresses his love and caring for Aggie by telling her all he has done in his life to provide for her, and his love is true because he stayed. He stuck it out through all the rough times because he wanted to prove to her that he deserves her. He calls her out for saying that they are stuck in a loveless marriage because everything he does, he does because he loves her. The two come closer together. Aggie secretly makes arrangements for Tom to buy his share of the taxi, which arrives in time for him to drive her to her daughter's wedding. Winston and Aggie share a moment together where Winston tells Aggie to keep her eyes open for the next part of the ride because up until now, just like when they rode the roller coaster at Coney Island, she has paid her money, took the ride, but missed the view. The, the end. So now we're going to discuss the story, what we like, what we don't like, all that jazz. You know. The, Wrong the show, meat. but... <laughs> right. This is the meat of the podcast. I guess since there's some Irish in this meat and potatoes. Oh my gosh. Hey, these are the jokes, folks. I got to be honest. So um, I didn't quite remember this show as well as I wanted to. So for the last while, I really had to go back and... And do my homework, look up clips of the show. We rewatched the movie version. I had to listen to the album again, and it all started coming back. And I was like, 
oh, okay, this was actually a decent show. Like, all right, I'm remembering this now. Well, I think just like the story talks about how, I mean, it's really about average people living an average life. And so it's easy for a show like this to get lost in the archives of our brains just because it's so normal. Well, it's it's a sweet and relatable story. Um, I'm literally, literally one of the I, when I was working today and, and driving around. One of the other shows that popped in my head that this reminds me of, it should have been you. Oh gosh! No, truly, like another story about <laughs> weddings, but relatable and you know funny when it needs to be, and one up a dramatic when it needs to be, and you've got more strained parents and everything. It was a decent show with great leading characters you know great uh i'll say uh, uh broadway legends right but we're not talking about no 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 I, I know that but I'm, I'm i'm drawing the parallel between the two and it kind of faded in the background on its season which i felt like this one kind of did too but you know going back and and revisiting the plot and the story and everything i'm like yeah this was a kind of a really sweet story and i really liked it and the music was really nice and it it all just melded together to be a whole complete show that, you know, it, 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 I don't want to call it meh by any means. Like, it wasn't this blockbuster, like, left the lasting impression, but it also definitely didn't underwhelm either. It definitely it hit all the marks and it was just the right about. It, it, it's like that perfect dessert that's not too sweet. It just hits all the right points. See, I was going to say it's more like... If you're looking at a platter of desserts, this is the unfrosted sugar cookie. Yeah. It's a classic. You know you're going to like it. Yeah. You know, it's just, yeah. it's it's a safe, it's safe. I, like I said, um, I thought the story was great. It's relatable. It's it's sweet. Mm-hmm. I Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll discuss more. I, I think the story relates more to societal things and we'll discuss that more later but i think it's just sweet just as a show it's nice it's sweet it's to the point it's like i think we can all if you've ever been married or gone through a wedding or helped with a wedding we can all relate to the craziness of moms or well and how a wedding can make you crazy yeah you know anyone out there who's ever been married i think very few people out there have ever wanted the extravagance of a huge wedding and if they have, might have second-guessed it sooner than later. I know with us, it was like, hey, even our wedding, I wouldn't call huge. And it was still, I was like, oh, my God, that's a lot. This is a lot. Oh, my gosh. Well, because the idea, just like the show, starts out really nice and sweet. And it's about love. But then you start getting into the nitty-gritty details of the conversation. And yep. what exactly that is. And that's, you know. Yeah. So let's talk about the set. It was simple. It was nostalgic. It was classic. It reminded me a lot of Guys and Dolls. Is it because they were in the Bronx? Well, Guys and Dolls wasn't in the Bronx. Guys and Dolls was in Times Square. Okay, well. The Biltmore and whatnot. But, no, no, just, just, it's almost, it it had almost like that comic book look to it, if you will. I know that's the era of the 1950s, but just, I guess the color palette... And the shape of everything. It, look, it just it had that Guys and Dolls-esque shape and look to it. I know. I love esque. It's, it's just the safe way to do it. It's insurance. Um, but it was. It was so... The set was so nice. It was so simple. A few pieces here created a whole world. You know, when they're at the bridal boutique and all we really see is 
that simple white chair and then the three-piece mirror and she's trying on the gown. We didn't have to have a huge flying set. It was so nice, you know? Right. Well, and speaking of wedding dress, I we think... We got to go into the costumes, right? Yeah. Is that where you, was that where you're leading? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was saying. Yeah. I mean, oh, look, I can spend a lot of time on... Well, this is my favorite era of costumes. I mean, the gloves, the pillbox hats, I... Well, and they could have gone ham on the costume, you know, being super like this big, huge bridal gown. But even at that, it was still a simple wedding dress. Well, they made sure to include, I mean, they're, you know, Aggie's trying to throw this big uh, catered affair, you know. But keep in mind, they are very, they are not people of means. So it's it's putting, it, it's the, the champagne dream on the beer budget, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, I loved... The style. One of the things I love about this is, you know, even though I don't want to call them destitute, that's not the right word, but uh, even though they're common folk. <laughs> no, I, I mean, they're at this era, you know, even though they're wanting, they still have, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, we would not look at them and be like, oh, they're poor by any stretch of the imagination. I would say, like, I would put myself in their class. You know, they look well. You know what they kind of remind me of um, is the, I mean, and maybe this is just because we're in Salt Lake City, but this reminds me of the big LDS family that, you know, goes through all the crazy couponing to be able to afford to feed all, you know, seven kids. But they all have like decent looking clothes. They yeah. all are presentable. They know how to. They know how to stretch a dime. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But thrifty. I, I, I love. I love the costumes. I love the suits. Harvey Firestein suits were perfect because, of course, he's supposed to be, you know, the bachelor uncle. But of course, it's the wink and the nod that he's clearly a flaming homosexual, and to make him. To make him look that way without making him look that way, like it was a simple thing, like he had a flower in his lapel. You know, it was these simple little things that made them look like a dandy without making them look flaming, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You know, I thought there was a lot of good detail in that. And of course, when we see uh, Alice and, you know, of course, her husband's out of work, she's she still looks put together. But you can see that that I don't know how a costumer does it, but they bring that element of desperation into a costume, almost like it's been ironed in. You know what I mean? Like it. It's an art, so... But again, I just... I love this era. I, I'm i I'm bored in the wrong era. I need to be born in the era where men wear suits and hats. I'm sorry. Um, you can still wear suits and hats if you want. Everyone will look at me funny. I mean, you already look like a Muppet. Thank just you. Just kidding. I love you. Um, speaking <laughs> of iconic, the lights. The lights were just so beautiful, and they really do... I know the lighting is supposed to set the mood, but this really did amplify it's, it. It sets it in that antique... Like yes. vintage. It, it was feel. like that soft, really gave it that extra. Mm, it's just like that like, yellow warm light, but yeah. not yellow. Yeah. It, 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 you know, we, we really got transported back to that time. And I really appreciated that because, you know, there's a lot of shows that you see where, you know, not everything is modern or whatnot. And to be able to to place yourself there and to actually go there as well. It's really nice. And, and kudos to the lighting designer for that. Right. Well, and I also think that it's worth us talking about the music right yes. now. Because I think that the music is also just very 
sweet. It's very realistic. It's very, it's almost like an underscoring of average life, but it's, it's there's something nice and like soft to it. It's beautiful and classic. It's got this golden era musical kind of sound to it. The um, composer, um, uh, John Buccino, he actually writes a lot of cabaret songs. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of these songs in the show are a lot of story songs, which mm-hmm. is something that I feel like catches a lot of people off guard because there's no like anthem or, you know, there's not like this typical musical theater song that there's it, no button. Well, well, it's like a lot of people, you know, when, when you hear about poetry, you're expecting the rhyme. But when you hear the poem that doesn't rhyme, you're like, that's not poetry. And it's like, oh, no, that's poetry. That's kind of how I feel about this is a lot of these songs are story songs. So it's not the A, B, A, B chorus, A, B, A, B chorus. No, there's, there's, that, that might be how the music works, but it's actually, there's a story being well, strung. Well, and there's some n- very nice, like, dialogue that happens. The, um, the vision song. Mm-hmm. I, oh. Well, and, I mean, the music still progresses the plot because there's still scenes moving through the song. Oh, yeah. Well, but that's the beauty of the story song, though, but it amplifies the acting that much more. They can't just sit there and, you know, that's why there's not a lot of heavy dancing in this, but they can't just sit there and rely on that the music's going to kind of help lift, I will say, the story, but actually we're going to act and tell the story a little bit more through the... Mm-hmm. I'm not making sense, I know, but it it's harder. A story song is a lot well, harder it's, to it's act. It's like a monologue. Yes, yeah. Um, but I wanted to go back to that, that vision song because what I love about it is I can only imagine Faith Prince having to recreate that every show and have to have it be real where she's like, I see pink, no, apricot. And she's going on about it. And I just loved Harvey Fire's scenes. And he, keep in mind, he wrote the book, perfectly little one-liners. You know, I see crisp white starched tablecloths with lilac underneath (laughs) you know he's got these great little additions that just really add into it and that's the kind of humor that balances out this it it's a beautiful song but also if you pull back out of it it's such a sad song too because this isn't the wedding for her daughter this is the wedding she always wanted exactly there and that's the thing is this is fun little bouncy song but then you're like this is kind of well, really depressing. You know, while we're on the vision song, the thing I love about that is, I mean, the whole song and the way that they performed it at the Tonys especially, um, was they the um, Janie and uh, Ralph were in their wedding clothes, like, dancing. Mm-hmm. And it was almost like they were a kick topper just spinning and the way that that music just kind of led itself to you know this is a dream and her dream is not necessarily that it's her daughter and um you know her daughter's future husband but it's that idea that at at its heart every woman thinks about that perfect wedding moment which is just kind of adds to that bittersweet of that song well i love that when when they talk about the cake topper and little bride and little groom on top and and Aggie says, no, there's only one bride in the room. Well, who's she talking about? Do you know what I mean? Like that, it's it's a testament to how really they're saying one thing, but they're saying another. And I think the music goes underrated. And this is one of those shows that you listen to once 
and you need to go back and listen to it again and you get a whole other imp- interpretation of it because like I said I was I couldn't remember the show as well as I wanted to and when I went back and I started listening to this again I went oh yeah oh yeah this music oh yeah you know Though the show had a brief run on Broadway, it featured some very notable cast members, including Faith Prince, who played Aggie, Harvey Firestein, who played Uncle Winston, Tom Wopat, who played Tom, and Leslie Rodriguez Kritzer. Let's now talk about the impact this show has had on theater and its history. Like, we haven't already been talking about it. (laughs) So, theatrically, look, it's a beautiful, classic style show. And I know that that sounds kind of like a a stereotypical thing. But, again, I was working today. I was thinking about this. I knew we were going to record. There really isn't a lot of shows done in the last 10, 15, 20 years that are that stereotypical new new shows that are um, in that classical kind of style show? You know, off the top of my head, I'm thinking nice work if you can get it. Uh, promises, promises. Well, no, see that. See, that's not a new show. That was from the the. Oh, 60s. I guess you're right. <laughs> you know, um, so was uh, nice work. If no, you, nice work if you can oh, get it. Was no, was I was a thinking show. of how how to succeed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so I love that 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 exists. You know, that there's still, because in, in, in musical theater, it's great that we have all these new, innovative shows coming about, but it's nice to also be like, hey, don't forget where we came from. There, It's called the golden era for a reason, you know, mm-hmm. and it laid the foundation and it solidified the bedrock that all of our our new stuff comes from well, for a reason. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about this show is it didn't, it didn't change theater it didn't change anything it wasn't innovative but it still deserved its place because there's something to be said about hearkening to the past and nostalgia exactly it's nostalgic there's nothing wrong with nostalgia no not at all and sometimes you know there are shows that you know you want you don't maybe you don't want to go see wicked and you don't need something that's going to be emotionally draining like that you don't want an edgy show or a rock yeah, show or something, or something. You just want some classic tale yeah just like tell me a story i'm not looking to be moved i'm not looking to be changed by this i just you know i'm not even looking to be inspired just tell me a story that, there's a reason why turner classic movies exist still because mm-hmm. sometimes we just want that old. I actually had this thought um, yesterday while we were watching the movie version um, to think about, and actually this goes hand in hand with the podcast that we're listening to. If you think about where theater and everything and movies and that were at the turn of the century, right? And the stories that existed there. And then you look at the number of movies and plays and musicals that kind of exploded from like 19, let's say 15 to 1940. Look at, there's not, like, I'm talking about new stuff. Look at all the new stories that people were writing and telling. It's insane. Mm -hmm. It's incredible. Mm -hmm. There's a reason why we keep hearkening back to kind of these older stories. Sometimes they deserve to be retold a little bit, you know? 
Um, it's a different side of the happy wedding story, too. I feel like a lot of times when weddings are involved in the theater, we're all kind of happy about it. And oh, yeah, it's like happy-go-lucky, and it's like, oh, you know, we, we have to do everything to make this happen, and yay, we're so happy that we're spending all this money, and it's like... A wedding ah! is always a happy occasion, and, and this is like, one that's like... There are realities to the to a wedding that aren't so glitz and glamoury. Exactly. I mean... It, it does have a, a negative connotation to it, which we'll get to later. But Right, but also, I mean, as far as also that goes, any person who's ever been in a wedding line, who's maybe not been married but been in a wedding line, you know that it's like, oh, yeah, you're fun, you're there, you're having a good time, but then you got to stay after the party's over and clean everything up. Right. And that always exists. And we it, just like to pretend that it doesn't. It was a brief show, but one that featured powerhouse, a powerhouse of talent. Uh, not just in the cast, but also in uniting like the director, John Doyle. John Doyle's done a lot of great work as a director. Um, but, I mean, seeing Tom Wolpat, Harvey Fire, seeing Faith Prince all on stage, oh my gosh, that was, oh, knock me out, you know. Let's go into the societal impact, because I know you've just been waiting <laughs> to get to this. So before we get to your main point, I think one of the societal impacts is that it's a heartwarming tale of the other side of the wedding, wanted by a woman. A lot of people assume that all women want a huge wedding. And here we are. The first thing that Janie says is, um, oh, what's the guy's name? Ralph. Ralph. Ralph and I are getting married. That's like, I believe that's her first line. She sings it. Ralph and I are getting married. Um, And then she says, we're having a simple ceremony. We don't want a big thing. Mm-hmm. That's not. First of all, I don't. I I would say maybe more so now we hear that, but especially back then, that's not something that was heard of, unless, of course, the pitter patter of little feet. Right. Well, I mean, and not always. Like my mom had no desire to have a big flashy wedding. But your mom wasn't from the fifties. That's true. That's what my I'm mom saying. was this, not from the fifties at this all. This was a heartwarming tale of the other side. Right, because especially to go against the societal norm in the 50s of all the eras, I mean, I feel like the societal norm was amplified and magnified in the 50s. So Yes, which leads us to the next thing. This is another show that held up a mirror to its audience and that reminded us not to live our lives through our children. Well, and one thing that I love is the song where the uh, parents are singing, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Holleran, and they keep repeating this little motif of who wouldn't, uh, uh, what we wouldn't do for our children's happiness, mm-hmm. you know, and it's like, it, you know, that does come from a place of love. Like, yeah, well, I would do anything for my children to be happy. But sometimes we get caught up in so much as to what we think we're doing better for our children than what they did for, than what our parents did for us, that we start to lose track of what our children actually want. And from the get-go, they said, we want a small cer- ceremony. And notice that even though the Hall- Hallorans Rouse parents say they're going on about this extravagant wedding they've given their other kids. Jane and Ralph aren't at all phased. It's Jane's parents, particularly her mom, who's threatened. And all of a sudden she decides, I have to put on a big affair. Right. Well, and I feel like the thing about, I mean, I think 
the way I would like to describe this story. I mean, I know it's been self self-proclaimed as a show that's like, you know, oh, you paid your money, you took the ride, but you missed the view. I honestly think that this show is more about um like living vicariously through your children and having regrets that you realized, oh, I didn't want to become my parents and I became my parents and I'm going to rectify that situation. Oh, I disagree wholeheartedly. I I think that 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 line is exactly what it is. You you paid your money, you took the ride, and you missed your view. And that's why she's trying so hard to live vicariously through her daughter because she wants to get the view back. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, like, I feel like this show really is... A, I mean, this show is about Aggie. Oh, this, this is Aggie's story, we 100%. We talked about this right before we started recording. We both love the Vision song, right? Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful, fun, common, dark thing, blah, blah, blah. But as um, Uncle Winston... It's like, okay, Aggie, close your eyes. Okay, now, what do you see? She starts describing everything that she sees. She sees pink. No, she sees apricot. And she describes the veil that she's wearing. And she describes what the tables are going to look like and everything. And the food and the flowers and this and that. And it's like, okay, that's what you want. But what does Jane want? We never, ever, when we're planning this big wedding... We never get to hear what Jane wants. Aggie's planning everything. And I'm just like, when do you consult the bride for the bride's big day? Well, and I think that there's so much to unpack here because you have a mother who's obviously grieving the loss of her son, but is so weighed down by financial constraints and societal constraints that she doesn't process his... The loss. She's trying, like the pendulum yeah. swinging the complete other yeah, way. And she's so trying she's, to over Exactly. Correct. So rather than yeah. choosing to grieve her son, she is pushing everything onto Janie and Jane, or Jane. And Jane's like, listen, you, I've never been in the spotlight. I don't want to be in the spotlight. Like, It's great that you want to give me love and I want your love too, but, but I this, don't want it this way. Well, and, and you know, that's I think it's interesting when they're at the wedding boutique and they're talking, you know, and... Uh, Aggie says, thank you for putting up with this, Janie. And Janie, you know, and Jane's like, well, you know, yeah, of course. You know, because Jane at at her core just wants to please her mom. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and that's where this gets really interesting because, uh, I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but for me, like, I knew what I wanted for my wedding and, you know, I knew that I wanted it to be something about us I wanted it to be our wedding not just my wedding like when I was younger it was like oh yeah this is my wedding but then once I started to understand what love was and what it meant to be married I was like you know what no I want this wedding to be about the two of us and I think that the big catered affair that Aggie's trying to plan was her trying to be like no I I'm not too young to be in love and you know I still want this life that I never had and instead of going you know like look you have actually created this life that you've spent all this time, you know, resenting because of how it played out rather than realizing there were parts of it that you liked. She, well, and the other thing I wanted to say is she spends the entire show trying to give a huge gift to the wrong person. She thought she owed so much to Jane. and she never, she's always loved Jane and Jane knew that. She spent the entire show trying to make up for what she thought she, to, to make up to someone that she thought she wronged, who was Jane. Mm-hmm. In reality, who she ended up wronging was her husband for so long. Right, because she just that's ignored him. That's who she him. owed. That's who she needed to make amends at. That's who she needed to give something great to. And in the end, she did by buying him 
the other part of the medallion for the taxi, which is what he wanted. And and a lot of people, I think, see that as well. But he does he really want to work? And, say, and it's like, no, that's really been his goal. And for her to acknowledge everything that he's done and his goal and to realize, like, I support you. That's the ultimate, like, well, I support you. Yeah. And the- it was the ultimate gesture to acknowledge I've been wrong. And it's it's truly a gesture of love at the end to go, you were right, Tom. Here's the money. Let's do what you wanted to do. Well, because he and to do it selflessly and almost in uh, secret to surprise him. That well, I that and, was and the thing is, is like Tom is just a, such an interesting character because I mean he didn't wake up one morning and go, yeah, I want to drive a taxi. He drove a taxi because his father-in-law gave him the means to make money to provide for his family, and he chose to do that to make money for his family. And now that he and his wife are in their, quote, golden years, he just wants to be able to provide for her as best as possible. Well, he he wants to take the situation he's in, and he wants to make it as good as possible. Exactly. And so, I mean... Like, listen, I'm not going to say, you know, Tom's perfect because also I think that this goes to show the hard part about, like, expressing love in the 50s because it was marriage out of convenience. It wasn't marriage out of love necessarily and not even convenience. It was marriage out of circumstance. I don't know. I think they really do love each other. I think they do really do love each other, but it's kind of that adage, you know, like in an arranged marriage, you can learn to love the other person. It just takes a different kind of work. You know what I mean? To have love come later in the marriage than at the beginning. And I think that that's where um, Aggie's whole character flaw is. is She she never really took the time to ask if she really loved um, Tom because they got married out of wedlock because she had a baby on the way. You know what I mean? And so it's easy to forget why you fell for a person, even if at the beginning it was just an attraction. You know, it takes time for love to foster and grow. And that's the same for everyone. Doesn't matter whether you're married right away or not. It takes time for love to be fostered and to grow. And I feel like the thing about this one is it reminds me of the show. It reminds me about the way that people here um, in Utah who get married so young think about love because Mm -hmm. they think that, oh, the love's supposed to happen and then it never goes away. They don't realize that love actually takes work and sometimes the kind of love you started with is not the same. Love you have all the way. Yeah, it's not the same kind of love and, and it comes from going through the rough times and the devotion. And sometimes, I mean, honestly, it's really easy to lose track of that, especially when things happen so fast, especially in a society that looks down on you for, you know, having a fast marriage or anything like that. And, you know, Aggie would never want that for her daughter because she had to go through it. And it's like, yeah, but that's not even what it's about. It is about love, but Aggie just has a different kind of love in the beginning and the end than Jane is going through with Ralph. Right. But I also just to wrap this up and get back to our point, I think at the end of the show, everyone's found this, the same kind of love Jane and Ralph have their love. That's deep. Aggie and Tom have rediscovered their love for each other. Everyone's in love. Everyone has found love. I don't think Aggie and Tom have settled. I genuinely think no, they I love each other. Settled. I think the issue is they don't know how to express it to well, each other. Well, that's exactly I think my point. Aggie thinks that Tom's settled. And I think Tom resents, Tom thinks Aggie resents him because... He could never this, provide more for her. Right. And reality, that none of that's true. It could have been resolved by them just saying that to each other. And I think that finally comes to a head 
when the wedding gets called off. But bringing it back around, I think holding the mirror up and don't live your life through your child kind of thing. You know, when people get married, like for us, for example, paid for our own wedding. We did our own thing. And when it came to our wedding in the middle of COVID times, when people had opinions, literally our response was, are you paying for this? That was your response. If you're not paying for our wedding, you can keep your opinion to yourself. We're going to decorate. We're going to do. This is how it's going to go because it's our wedding. It's going to be as big or as small as we want it because it's our special day. And when we were making decisions about our wedding, if it didn't make us happy, if it didn't, if it wasn't about us since it was our big day, it wasn't one of those things that we wanted to keep around. We were thinking less about everyone else because it was our big day. And I feel like that's what's important to remember in this from this show is a wedding is not about the parents. A wedding is about the couple. Yeah, it's not you about the family. You get one in your lifetime, you know. I mean, a lot of people could have others, but let's just say you get one in your lifetime, you make it count. Well, and I think that, I mean, I wouldn't uh, go as far to say, well, if you didn't do this, then you don't get a say in it. For me, it was more like, you know what? This is about us and our love, and honestly... Like, I ain't, I'm not going to let anyone try to bring me down. Like, haters going to hate. I'm going to, we're going to. Get your gangster crayon on, uh, We're going to do what we want to do because it's about us. And if you'd like to join us, that's great. And if you can't join us, that's also great. We're right. going to do us and you do you. And maybe those paths will cross. Right. And I think that's important. So, is the show still relevant? I think relative. Sure. I think relevant is a uh, I'm not sure Interesting if the show word. is relevant for Broadway, but may see more success or a better reception in a smaller theater like a regional or a community. Well, and I think that that comes down to the word of relevant. What is relevance? Who decides relevance? Oh my gosh, we do not have the time, Freud, <laughs> to get into that. No, I just I, mean... I don't think that there is an audience or a market right now for a catered affair on Broadway. I don't think that it, it, it's going to draw an audience, a thousand seat person audience well and i don't think it's going to do that in I a community story, original either but i think the story would definitely i think it would work in many other markets around the country i think it would do great in utah i yeah. think i think if pioneer theater did a catered affair i think it would do great you know yeah well and because i think that it's less about the show being relevant and more be about being relatable or the story like is this Sorry. a story people want to hear right now? I mean, or is it a story that we want to tell right now? I, I think that's the question, not the relevancy, but I think in that case, I think it's very relevant considering what's a COVID wedding like, but small to medium family, you know what I mean? Like Oh my gosh, if this is not the perfect COVID story, we're having a small Ralph and I are getting married. We're doing it quick next Thursday, and it's just going to be the two of us because of COVID. I <laughs> and mean, scene. That's I the mean, show. but that's, I think that, I think, I, I just feel like, you know, oftentimes we get so caught up in what is relevant and what is not relevant. And I think that the real question comes back to storytelling. Is this a story that people want to hear right now? And is this a story that people want to tell right now? And I think the answer to that is yes, but in small communities, not yeah. on a national or global platform. I agree to that. Although I also say anyone that's, have an over, that's ever had an overbearing mom can relate. So 
my mother out there. I love you, mom. I mean, I don't know if I'd call her overbearing. I she love tries you. to uh, over overcorrect too quickly. I love my mom. Yes, you do. As promised, we wanted to share some of our own personal stories about experiencing the show. I saw this show once back in 2008. And sadly, I have not seen this show. So, I guess I've got all the stories. Um, I Okay, so fun fact about this. Um, so, I saw this show back in 2008 with my good friend Watson. Um on a trip we took after he graduated, we actually saw this show on its closing show. On the very last show of this production. Oh. We, we saw the closing show, which was, I didn't realize until uh, we were putting our research together and I got into my little theater journal and, you know, we had just typed the closing date of the show and I said, wait, I wonder, and I got my theater journal opened up and I went, oh my God, I saw the closing show. So, saw the closing show. That was cool. Um, while we were in the theater, there was a huge thunderstorm. And my friend and I had scored tickets. Uh, we were on the orchestra level, but we were like the far right side, right by the exit doors, you know, um, cheap seats. Um, but we could hear the thunder from the store right outside. It was, inc- it was insane. Um, but it was a cool, it was a great experience. It was really cool to see the show. After the show, when we did the Kiss and Cry line, I got to meet Harvey Firestein. You want to say that again? Harvey Firestein. I know, it came out of my mouth, and I was like, I'm sorry, who did I meet? Harvey <laughs> Firestein. Uh, he was so nice. Really, really great. Um, I have his autograph on my playbill. Oh, I just, oh. That's a legend right there. I just can't believe it. Uh, also got to see Stephen Schwartz. He was at the show. So that was really cool. So as things begin to return to normal and the theater world starts to turn its lights back on, we look forward to returning to see the show again. You'll be able to catch a catered affair, hopefully at a theater near you this fall. We just want to take this moment again to remind all of our listeners to continue to help foster the performing arts wherever they are as these venues continue to reopen. Please join us in doing your part to help the arts return by supporting a live performance near you. Also, we would really love to hear from all of you out there. Send us your personal stories about your experiences in the theater, whether it was on stage, backstage, or... At the stage door. We want to hear all about it. You can send us your stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. In a couple of weeks, we'll start incorporating your own stories into each episode. Finally, we just want to give a shout out to some of our listeners out there. So to all of you up in northern Utah and in the great state of Kansas, thank you all for listening out there. Until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. Two friends from old New York town Met in a foreign land One sang the praises of
If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at stagewhisperpod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Fox by Music for Wildlife. Other music on this episode provided by William Ross Chernoff's Nomads, Kevin McLeod, The Good Lauds, and Billy Murray. Call the island a